0: All right, if you have your Bibles, open up with me to the Gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John in the New Testament, and we'll be in John 14 and chapter 16, so I'm going to read those, and then we're also going to look in a little bit at 1 Corinthians 2, so we'll turn there. I'm not going to read that now, but we are the second and final week of the state of the church talking tonight about revival, and of course that's going to need to be centered on the Holy Spirit. So let's look at John 14, verse, beginning in 15, verse 15. So we'll read 15 through 26, and then we'll flip to chapter 16 and read 5 through 15. This is John chapter 14, starting in verse 15. These are the words of God. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate, that he may be with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see him or know him. You know him, because he abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. On that day, you will know that I am in, the, in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him, and I will disclose myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our dwelling with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you, but the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Now flip to chapter 16, verse 5. Oh, but now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. And concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. I still have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak from himself, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. Let's pray. Our Father and gracious God, we come now before you asking for your grace and your mercy as we look to your word. We wish to behold wondrous things out of your law, so would your spirit aid us as we consider these matters. Father, you have been exceedingly kind and ever so gracious to us. We readily admit that we do not deserve this. However, we come with gratitude and boldness, asking for more. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for sending your advocate to be with us. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would burn away our sin so that we might be left with righteousness. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Well, last week we began our brief State of the Church 2022 series by looking at the concept of Reformation as we've experienced it in the past, in the Protestant Reformation 500 years ago, and what we can expect to experience in the future should the Lord allow us to return to the authority of the Scriptures and seek to hear His Word and do His will. Any children remember that from last week? What is Reformation? Well, it's to hear His Word and do his will. Now my main argument last week boiled down to the need for a rediscovery of the law word of God and its applicability to all of life. There is no reformation apart from a recapturing of the authority of God and his word. There's no reformation possible apart from the recapturing of the authority of God and his word and God in his word as I we can say as well. And we know this is the case because history has essentially told us this. Remember what happened to King Josiah last week? We looked at that story from 2 Kings 22 and 23. Uh, the Israelites were so far gone that they didn't even realize that the Word of God was sitting in the temple. That's, it's sort of like some churches have a huge large print Bible up front and it's like, oh, I didn't even know that was there. That's kind of how it was like. Um, the pastors in the pulpits, weren't teaching the comprehensive kingdom. They were busy entertaining the masses with their religious ceremonies. That's essentially what was going on in Israel during that time. Once Josiah caught wind, he looked to the word, he repented, and then he led all of Israel into repentance. And there was great social change because of what happened when they rediscovered the book of the law and they realized, oh yeah, God has spoken to us. Maybe we should listen. And then change happened. You'll never have change in your life or change out there until we stop and say, oh yeah, this is God's Word. Now, tonight I want to build off the concept, off of the concept of Reformation and talk about revival specifically. Most Christians, it seems to me, think that if we just talk about it enough or pray about it enough, that revival will visit us. Sort of like a magic thing, we view God as a cosmic vending machine. If we just have the right inputs, then we can strong-arm God into bringing us and giving us what it is we want. We want revival, that I'm sure of it, but we want revival to come on our terms and conditions. And herein lies the problem. Uh, Tozer once said, we are calling on God to send fire on our altars, completely ignoring the fact that they are our altars and not God's. Isn't that what Christianity has become anyway? Of course that's what we do. When the Christian religion becomes a mere means to our own end, then of course we ask God to bless our disobedience. We murmur and complain and we cry out to God, why is my life situation thus? Why won't you send revival? I need to be revived. When God in heaven replies, when will you stop murmuring and complaining? When will you stop ignoring my word? When will you stop coming to me, asking me to bless your rebellion? The main reason we don't have revival right now, assuming that repentance is always the first thing on the to-do list, is because we want God, but we don't want too much of Him. That's, it's as simple as that. We want God, but we don't want too much of Him. If we get too much of God, then we might have to stop with this addiction thing over here on our phone or whatever it is. If we get too much of God, that might encroach upon our personal time, the me time, my self-care time, right? If we get too much of God, then we might have to stop with this distraction over here. The problem of our day is one of desperation. Christ will never be our only hope until He is our only hope. It's as simple as that. He will never be our only hope until He's our only hope. And right now, we have a whole host of things standing in line ahead of Him. What will it take for us to reach the point where Christ is, in fact, our only hope? At what point will we learn the great blessedness of obedience to Him? Many Christians today are willing to tolerate anything and everything but the total lordship of Christ they will tolerate anything and everything but the total lordship of Christ. If you want revival, friends, it's going to have to start with you. It has to start with me. So tonight I'm asking us here, and I'm asking the worldwide church as well, who I know, again, isn't present with us. But I'm asking... Us to pause for a second to drink deep from the well that is the Word of God and get back to a basic trust a basic reliance on the Holy Spirit every single moment of every single day it really is that simple you want revival it starts with you you want revival it starts with you do you hunger and thirst for righteousness do you hunger and thirst for righteousness Do you have an ache in your soul for the fire of the Holy Spirit? Are you so bold as to ask God to burn away the dross and clear your soul of the muck that is sin and unrighteousness? Then be prepared to experience pain. Be prepared to experience suffering and difficulty. Idols are not to be handled with kid gloves. So let's look at our text. starting in the Gospel of John. We have here in these two sections of the Gospel of John a lot of doctrine as it pertains to the Holy Spirit. Jesus gives us some insight as to the inner workings of the Spirit, who he is, what he does, and how that relates to to us. So let's look at our first text there in John 14. We're told in verse 15 that if we love Christ, if, if we love Christ, the surest way to identify that to identify that love is our obedience to his commandments. You know, I, there is, there's sort of like this, again, we want God but not too much God because then it, we might actually have to, oh, well, we, we have to obey him now. It's, it's come down to this. We have to stop messing around. We have to obey him. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And in light of this, Jesus promises to ask God The Father, by the way, look at verse uh, 15 and then 16. See how verse 16 starts with the word and? Some translations say something else. It's the Greek word Kai, K-A-I. And it's just a a connecting verse. It's all over the New Testament. Paul loves the word Kai. And uh, that's why I wanted you to see verse 15, because he's building the doctrine of the Holy Spirit off of the assumption that if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. And... And I will ask the Father and He will give you another helper, you know, the the advocate. So just note note the connection there. But in light of that truth, Jesus promises He's going to ask the Father about sending divine assistance to His obedient people, namely the giving of the Holy Spirit, advocate. That's verse 16. Some translations say comforter. Some say counselor. The ESV says helper. Uh, The ESV has a note, which is fine. It's there. But I, I think... The Greek word is paraclete, but paraclete is probably best translated as advocate. The term is a forensic, uh, it's forensic in nature. It has to do with law and court and this, this judicial setting. So advocate's a great, a great translation. It has to do with legal aid, almost like an attorney. Uh, it, Jesus is gonna ask the Father to basically send all of us an attorney, someone who's on call, you know, he's on retainer <laughs> 24-7, and no charge, which is great, uh, but he's your legal aid, he's your advocate. And when Jesus, what Jesus is saying to his disciples is that the Spirit is their legal aid for the task at hand. He's sending them out into the world and they need help because the world is jacked up and they're going to need legal assistance along the way. So that's essentially what he's saying. And, and, and note that the Trinity is clearly identifiable here. You have Jesus the Son talking to the Father about sending the Spirit. One of the most clearest passages we have on the Trinity. In verse 17, the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Truth. The world cannot receive Him because it doesn't see Him or know Him. How could a world stuck in sin and rebellion see Him? They can't. But disciples can, and we too can, know. We can also know uh, Him because He lives in us forever, Jesus tells us. So when he says, when Jesus says in verse 18 that he will not leave us as orphans, he's essentially telling his disciples that he's not going to leave them helpless. Orphans were considered vulnerable and helpless. I'm not leaving you helpless, he's saying. The advocate will be with you. The the advocate will be with them. Jesus is going away from them, but they won't be lost in this world of darkness because they, they have the help they need. Now skip down to verse 25. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you, but the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Jesus tells his disciples that the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father sends in the name of the Son, will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Before extrapolating on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, I want to flip one more. Go back to John 16, or skip ahead to John 16. John chapter 16. And just kind of hold there in that section from chapter, or, or, uh, verse 5 through 15. <clears throat> Jesus has told them He's going away. As a result, they're very sorrowful. Their friend's going away. They don't fully understand the complexity of what's about to take place. He's going to the cross. He's going to be put to death. And three days later, he's going to rise from the dead. And then he's going to spend time with them. But he's eventually going back to be seated on the the throne of David in the heavenly of heavenlies. And he's going to rule and reign over the nations from there. But he is trying to say, hey, you're not helpless here. I have something for you. I have a gift for you. And he tells them something in verse 7. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. Note that language, by the way. I'm going to explain that in a second. But it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. It benefits the disciples that Jesus goes away. They don't see that, obviously. We, we would neither. We would assume it would be so great to have Jesus just sitting here with us. And I'd I just stop talking and let him go, right? I mean, that's. But Jesus says, no, it's better that I go away. It's to your advantage that I go away. Imagine that for a second. The Holy Spirit inside of you is far more beneficial and advantageous than Jesus sitting next to you. That's the logic. Now, in order for the Spirit advocate to come, Jesus must go. And note that Jesus says that he will send him sort of a doctrinal point this is why the ancient creeds and the confessions would emphasize the fact that the father and the son both send the spirit so the father is not the son the son is not the father the spirit is not the father the spirit's not the son the son's not the father and the son's not the spirit <laughs> the father's the father the son's the son the spirit's the spirit that's i'm just giving this is trinitarian doctrine you can memorize that later it's not hard. Just make sure you say one's not all three times in different ways. You guys can work on that. Ben, you'll work on that at home later, right? That works. <laughs> I think it looks like I just confused him. Um, but the point is, though, is the Trinity is the Trinity. There are three persons and one God. But the Father and the Son are working in conjunction to send the Holy Spirit. And that's partly why the creeds speak as such. And look at verse 8. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin, because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me, and concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. This is an often misunderstood passage, so I'm going to try to make it simple for you. First, when the spirit advocate comes, a trial will begin. Or maybe more specifically, not only will a trial begin, but the conviction or exposing of the world will be set forth as clear as daylight. Tongues of fire, Pentecost, Holy Spirit comes upon the church. Suddenly, like it went from black and white to full HD 1080p, right? It it went high def. That's the change from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. And essentially, essentially, um, that moment was when the world was now charged. That's what Jesus is saying. The world is now exposed. The world is now convicted for the sham that it is. Second, the conviction of the Holy Spirit, he says, pertains to three things. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. So concerning sin, verse 9 says, because they do not believe in Jesus. Meaning that the world is exposed for the sham that it is because the world refused to believe on Jesus. Going so far as to put Him to death. So the coming of the Spirit convicts the world of the fact that it remains in unbelief and in darkness, and the greatest sign of that is the fact that they put the Messiah to death. That's what the world's lusts came together and said, we're going to collude and we are going to put this man down. So Jesus came as the light of the world. This goes back to the earlier parts of the Gospel of John. And the world chose darkness because their deeds were evil. So the Spirit's work, what Jesus is saying is the Holy Spirit's work will prove and expose the world on that basis. Then he says concerning righteousness in verse 10. Concerning righteousness, because Jesus goes to the Father and is no longer visible to them. Now I take that word righteousness, it's dikaiosone in in Greek. Uh, I take that word righteousness to be a reference to Jesus' own righteousness and His own covenant faithfulness and His own vindication meaning that the world is going to be shown to be wrong about Jesus and his faithfulness to God and his covenant, because Jesus is going to come outside, come out the other side of the tomb, and he will be alive. Death will no longer hold him, and he will then go to the Father. And yet the disciples will still have the Spirit of God in them, the one that the world is not going to receive. So that's kind of a lot of stuff packed in that verse but I think that's what Jesus is telling us. And then in verse 11 concerning judgment, the Holy Spirit proves the world wrong because the accuser, the ruler of this world of evil has been judged. That is the fact that Jesus conquered death. He went back to the Father. He out, he sent the Holy Spirit that day on Pentecost. That is evidence that the ruler of this world has been judged or condemned. Which Jesus had already talked about that. Now is the ruler of this world cast out. Now is this ruler judged. And Jesus defeated the devil. Um, But as far as like putting it on display for the world to see, that's part of what the Holy Spirit will do. In other words, the mere presence of the advocate with the people of God convicts the world and the world's leader, that is, the Satan, the accuser, and he's going to tell them that the jig is up. Evil is no longer allowed to just free roam. The gospel is here. Now having said all that, look at verse 13. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. Note that phrase, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak from himself, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. When the Spirit of truth comes... He is our guide or He is our leader into all the truth. Okay, just in the next, you don't have to flip there, but John 17, 17. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. The Holy Spirit guides us into into all the truth. He doesn't speak from Himself, but He hears from the Father and the Son, and then He speaks. So the Spirit searches and discloses. I'm going to explain that later. But He searches the mind of God and discloses to God's people the mysteries of the faith. Now, flip one more place to 1 Corinthians. So keep going toward the end of your Bible. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, and then get to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. It's right after the book of Romans. And I'm going to sort of tie all this together here. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 10 through 15. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 10. But to us God revealed them through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the depths of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the depths of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. This is kind of crazy language. I'm not going to explain every little detail, but essentially, who else but God can know God? So the Holy Spirit plays that role in the Godhead. Now we have received, not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the depths graciously given to us by God, of which depths we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit, combining spiritual depths with spiritual words. And note this, this is what I want to focus our time, but a natural man does not accept the depths of the spirit of God. You can't take an unregenerate person and have the Holy Spirit disclose to them the insanely amazing, incredibly awesome truths about God, they, they can't, they, it doesn't compute. We're squawking on different channels of the radio. But a natural man does not accept the depths of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually examined. But he who is spiritual examines all things. The ESV says judges, anacrino is the word. It just means to evaluate or appraise. I think that's what the NASB says. I like the LSB here. Examines all things, yet he himself is examined by no one. Paul tells us that God reveals himself through the vehicle of his Holy Spirit. That's how God has chosen to reveal himself, to disclose himself. The Spirit is a searcher. He's a searcher. He does not search because he needs knowledge. Okay, God's not looking around the, the halls of time trying to discern what might happen in 2022. He has no idea. It's been crazy for 2 years. Who knows what'll come? God does not need to look down the halls of time. The Spirit is a searcher. He doesn't go searching for knowledge. Rather, he is in the Father and in the Son and he brings those deep treasures to us to assist us. So when you start to freak out and have an anxiety attack, you can stop and say God's sovereign. I don't I don't have to do that. I don't have to let my mind go there, my heart go there. I can remember that the Spirit has searched the things of God, sort of drudged them up and dumped them on me, and I have what I need. I don't have to let myself go there. That's essentially one way to apply that. And that's what verse 11 essentially says. So speaking of the natural man who cannot accept the things of the Spirit, Paul goes on to tell us, <laughs> by the way, you wonder why like the whole conversation about mass psychosis and all this stuff, like what is, what is this delusion that has just fell upon the entire world? The narrative's falling apart day by day. Every news headline that comes out is squashing what we were told two years ago. But why isn't people are stopping and thinking and you wonder why? Here you go. The natural man cannot understand the things of the Spirit. Christians are deluded for their own ignorance to the Word of God, but the unbeliever has no concept of it. Neither here nor there for now but Paul goes on to tell us that the truly spiritual person this is kind of the point I want to make the truly spiritual person is the one who examines all things please don't miss that by the way when we think of someone who is spiritual we usually take note of their extensive Bible reading book reading prayer closets nice gold lined prayer closet of sorts those types of things. Usually that, that's how we think of someone who's a spiritual person, but the truly spiritual man or woman is the one who has the maturity and the wisdom to examine and appraise and judge all things in accordance with the law of God. That's a spiritual person. Spiritual people are the wise ones that just know what, what's going on. He's not duped. He's anchored in truth. Now, <clears throat> before I dig into the concept of revival... I want to summarize the doctrine of the Holy Spirit from these passages, so bear with me. First, the Holy Spirit is a teacher. The Holy Spirit is a teacher, one who teaches us the oracles of God. In order to know God, we must be taught by God. In order to be taught by God, we must have the Holy Spirit of God. So the Holy Spirit is a teacher. Second, the Holy Spirit is our advocate. One who defends us against the accuser. One who applies the legal standing given to us in Christ. Paul says, who shall bring a charge against the elect of God? It's God who justifies. And, he might as well keep going, it's the Holy Spirit who stands in our defense. Third, the Holy Spirit is in fact our comforter. He is our comforter. One who gives peace when we're in distress, joy when we're unhappy, and shelter during the storm. He is a comforter. Fourth, the Holy Spirit is our judgment. Meaning, He is the one who gives us wisdom to discover the truth about God and His Word and wisdom how to discern how to live in God's world. Will we yield to the Spirit? That's my question tonight. Will we yield to the Holy Spirit? He was at work in creation. He was at work at the resurrection of Christ. He gives us the power to change our conduct. Reform our hearts and curb our unrighteous appetites. He is the ruler and Lord of our hearts, the one who applies the work of Christ to us. Whatever you have in Christ, friends, you have because the Holy Spirit came upon you. Your regenerate heart is there because of the Holy Spirit. Your joy, your hope, your peace, your spiritual sobriety is there because of the Holy Spirit. In order to bring the work of Christ to the soul of a person, to actually apply, I mean, think about it. Christ died 2,000 years ago. How does that apply to me now in the future from then? How does that apply? Well, the Holy Spirit's power is required. He helps us attain the knowledge of the, all truth. Since truth today is a very difficult endeavor, He guides us into it. The Spirit is an infallible person. He's distinct from the Father and the Son, yet remarkably the same in terms of deity. And by the way, that's why he has so many different names. He's called the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of the Father, and so on. The Spirit is a glorious guide who leads us into the caverns of truth. The Spirit's job is to make sure that you are aligned to the truth. And He will never go halfway with you. He will never go halfway. He is always consistent despite our inconsistencies. He only gives witness to the truth and nothing else. He's not going to give you half-truths. He's not going to just left you to fend for yourself. He is with you, and He is there. If only you wouldn't quench Him and suppress Him. But He is there. And finally, He is the one who causes us to walk in the ways of the Lord. That's Ezekiel 36.27. Now, we could spend hours upon that. We don't have the time. But I want to apply what we've learned thus far. My main premise tonight is very simple. Just as there is no reformation apart from the Word of God, there is also no revival apart from an utter reliance upon and devotion to the Holy Spirit. Okay, there's no reformation apart from the Word of God and the authority of God's Word. And there is never going to be a revival apart from... There never was a revival, by the way. Think of the Welsh revival, the Great Awakenings. You think about these times when God has moved in the past and we all want to see that again. We would love to see... Mass conversions. I'd love to see half of Fauquier County all of a sudden repent, come to Christ, and have the true biblical worldview. Oh, I would love it. What what swift change could take place? But we're not going to have it apart from an utter reliance upon and devotion to the Holy Spirit. We can spend our days living our lives, doing whatever it is that we do, offering up a prayer or two here or there, gathered together like this. And we can ask God for revival and reformation, but it simply will not happen until that reliance on the Holy Spirit and devotion to the Holy Spirit is utter and absolute. And I, I understand, the, you guys, maybe, maybe it was this morning, do you, you ever wake up and you just feel like a curmudgeon? You're just miserable, and <laughs> no one did anything yet. Your husband didn't even talk to you yet, ladies, uh, or the other way around. But you just you just feel gnarly emotionally, and and you stop and you just think, oh, today's going to be the worst day, and you sort of forecast yourself into despair. <laughs> That's not utter and absolute dependence on the Holy Spirit, is it? It's not. It's looking at your situation. Woe is me. Sort of the Elijah Elijah syndrome. I'm the only prophet that's left. I'm the only guy who's defending your honor, Lord. I'm just going to hide in this cave. I might as well die. No. i got 7,000 men who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. Sort of self-pity ourselves. That's not utter and absolute dependence. And let me explain what I mean. The Holy Spirit leads us into all truth. This means that the Holy Spirit is present with us, He is active within us, and He guides us into the fullness of covenant life, which is to say the Holy Spirit takes the truth about God, plants it in our hearts and our minds, and then leads us into greater obedience into every single area of life. And what we must not do is circumvent that process. The main job of the Spirit is to take all of the benefits you receive based on the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and stuff them into your heart and your mind. Every nook and cranny, He's shoving it in there. You need to know the atonement of Christ and His death for you. You need to know that His obedience is for you too. You need to know all of these things, and the way you get them is by the Holy Spirit, who's like just stuffing it in there every day, pushing it into your heart. And you can say, oh, no more, that's too much. And that's what we do when we'd rather throw a hissy fit than just yield ourselves to Him. But that's what the Spirit's main job is, to stuff the work of Christ into your heart and your mind. And Jesus became wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That's 1 Corinthians one thirty. And the Holy Spirit comes along and, 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 and gives it to you. He gives you that wisdom. He gives you that sanctification. He gives you the holiness, the redemption, the righteousness. The Spirit drags you along and sets you up at the feet of Jesus and says, Here, behold your Master. And if you're not coming along, that's on you. And that's what He does. He's not in it for His own glory. He's not doing it to leverage something against you. It's pure and undiluted grace. It's the mercy of God. It's not anything you deserve because we all know we don't deserve an ounce of it. And that's where history is going, by the way. History is moving in the direction of holiness and sanctification. All the inconsistencies and unrighteousness, all the unrighteous things that are in our hearts and mind that we fight day in and day out, all of that is going away. Why? Because the spirit moved in. History is the presence of God moving slowly into the presence of man as man grows, matures and has his image restored. So what the spirit, excuse me, what sin has polluted, the spirit cleanses. What sin has marred, the spirit enhances. What sin has effaced, the spirit preserves. Wherever sin has gone, whatever sin has touched, the gospel is the balm that will be applied by the Spirit, starting with men, starting with our families, starting with our churches, and then going out into the world. That's the game plan. That's post-millennialism 101. It starts in your heart, and he's taking that balm of the gospel, and he's healing up and binding up your wounds, and he's pointing you to Jesus, sitting you straight up and looking him in the face and saying, this is your master. Go and do what he does. And you can't stop that, by the way. You can try to suppress it. You can throw yourself into the ditch, but you're gonna, eventually you realize, yeah, I'm in the ditch. I'm in the ditch of despair. I woke up again and I'm miserable. I need help. I need to cry out to Him. Now, re- regarding revival itself, because <clears throat> I want to make sure I deal with this, there are impediments. There are impediments to revival. 2 Corinthians 6.12 says that if we are restrained by anything, it's our own affections. If we're we're restrained by anything in our lives, it's not your friend that you have a problem with, it's not your husband or your spouse, whatever, your kids, your parents, whatever problem you have that's restraining you from the goal of Christ and a Spirit-filled life, it's nobody else but your own affections. So, you can go look 2 Corinthians 6.12 up later, but that's exactly what he says. It's not the devil, it's not man, it's not the government, it's not Fauci, it's not... All that's going on, yeah, they're contributing to the mess, but what restrains you from pursuing the Holy Spirit and the Word of God is you. That's it. How can the Spirit, who is impervious to defeat, suffer any loss? He cannot lose, for Christ is risen. But what exactly prevents us from experiencing revival? That's what I want to answer next. Perhaps the foremost reason that we don't experience revival either on a personal level or a corporate level is because we think that prayer alone is supposed to do it. Must we pray? Yes. But are we praying as hypocrites, asking for God to do one thing while we do another? Can a man have righteousness without first hungering and thirsting for it? We don't pray be- we don't pray because we're not hungry and when we're praying And when we pray, forgetting our thirst, we're merely participating in rote exercise. Pray with the same fervor you would would have. Think about this. Pray with the same fervor you would have should you ever be caught in the desert without water. Revival doesn't come when men are satisfied with themselves. Revival doesn't come when men are satisfied with themselves. To be satisfied with your current state of affairs is to be complacent And to be complacent is to be out of step with the Spirit. Would you go with your guide into the caverns of truth? Then follow him there. If you think you've had enough of the tour, it's time to follow him some more. We're supposed to press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward calling of God in Christ Jesus, Paul says in Philippians. If you're not pressing, it's because you think yourself to be impressive. The surest reason you're not pressing is because you think you're impressive. So revival won't come by prayer alone. Revival doesn't come when we're satisfied with ourselves. Revival won't come if your heart is divided. When the Spirit brings you into the kingdom, there's no, other, there's no toleration for other pretended kings. It's not, here's Jesus, worship Him if you will, but you know, there are other kings available if He doesn't meet that satisfaction. No, there's no divided allegiances allowed in the kingdom. None of that. If you have an idol that you keep gnawing at, like a dog to a bone, then don't expect revival. The Spirit is trying to teach you through His Word, but when we have idols, we're too busy, we're too distracted. Put yourself in a position to be blessed should the Lord grant you reprieve. At least stop chewing on the dumb bone. Put the idol in the trash can and move on. It does no one any good to have their Bible up on the shelf collecting dust. Revival also won't come if we don't repent. Do we really think, do we we really want to ask God to shower our filthy clothes when our intention is to just put them back on and get them dirtied again? Repentance is deep, deep enough to know that there's more to go even when we're not even sure what's there. You're never done repenting. None of us are ever done repenting. Revival won't also it won't come if we will not insist upon the law of God. What is it we are asking God to do here when we say that? God, please bring revival. What are we asking Him? Well, we're asking to align us with His Word. That's one thing. To fill us afresh with and anew with His holy Spirit, and what happens when we have His word and we have His spirit? He leads us into all the truth. And what better truth is there than the law, the very reflection and the character of the character and nature of God? We need the spirit to see the Word, and we need the Word in order to give us guidance. The two go together. That's why it's Reformation and revival. You don't get one without the other. Anything short of a complete reformation and recapturing of the law of God will be nothing but a spiritual fit of joy that will momentarily turn sour. I grew up in church. I'm a church kid. I went to church camp. You, can, you leave church camp and you're like, yeah, I'm reading my Bible. What happens a week later? I don't know where it is. You get that quick little jabby jab, not to trigger anybody here, but a, a little spiritual pick-me-up, a shot in the arm. Ugh. And what happens? It goes away. Because it was, it, was, it was an inch deep. It was an inch deep. Besides, I was more happy about other things at camp than, than God and His Word. But we want God and all of God. Not some, but all. And when we want all of God, we want all of His holy standards too. You see, many today want the benefits of Christ without paying any mind to the work of the Holy Spirit who gives you those benefits. I want to say that again. Think about this. Many want the benefits of Christ, what he gives to us, without paying any mind or attention to the work of the Holy Spirit who gives us those benefits. And I get it. There are are like extremes to it. I've seen the charismatics on TV where they go into their holy laughter thing and they just fall down and laugh for hours on end. It's ridiculous. But we probably could afford to laugh more, right? That's why memes are great. And T-shirts are great too. We could afford to laugh more, but that's—we've seen the extremes. I've been in those places. I've been in those churches. They're all over Africa. They hooting and hollering for three hours, and I just need some food and a nap. What is going on here? <laughs> I came to preach a 20-minute sermon. I got to wait three hours till the music's over. But God bless them. Praise God. I believe they're genuine. But. And the point isn't even those, you know, sort of immaterial things, or even the material things for that matter. It's none of that. But we need to remember that we can't want all of Christ and then not want to work with the Holy Spirit in our lives. We want the meal, but we don't want to thank our wives for making it. We want the freedom and liberty to to be a living, natural man unmolested by the state, but we'd rather just go along to get along. If you want Christ, then you have to have and you must have His Holy Spirit. And you do. But alas, we are in quite a predicament. (sighs) Sort of a rabbit trail, but it'll make sense. Modern churches loosen the demands of following Christ when they elevate and strengthen the, the demands of their particular religious activities. Let me say that again. Modern churches loosen the demands of Christ. Remember the whole take up your cross and follow me? What do most churches do today? We just want you to be the most comfortable you've ever been in your life. (laughs) You've loosened the demands of Christ and then you've strengthened your demands and you've gone against what the gospel says to do. When churches decide to become entertainment venues and we have tons of them around here in this county, just tons of them. The church has tried to do the work of the Holy Spirit. They've tried to be the Holy Spirit. The reason this is the case is because they try to be the sole proprietors of truth rather than the Holy Spirit guiding us into all truth. They've ecclesiasticized the covenant. We're basically back to 13th century Roman Catholicism. You want truth, you have to go through the church. You want truth, you have to go through the vicar, which we agree with, the vicar of Christ on earth is the Holy Spirit, not the Pope. But all of that's nonsense. nonsense. All of this nonsense with trying to loosen what Christ has bound together and so on, that, all of this is the work of the Holy Spirit. And what happens in that type of environment is we end up striving against the Holy Spirit. He's our primary combatant right now, friends. The Holy Spirit is our primary combatant right now. We want what we want, and we don't want what He wants. And we're all on the path, walking narrowly towards heaven... The Holy Spirit is guiding us on this path called truth. If we do not look to what He is doing and what the truth is that He's revealing along the way as He drops those nuggets as we're following Him into these caverns through this this path, if we don't stay on it, we will stray every single time. Billboards and the signposts along the way that point us to the new heavens and the new earth are not sufficient. We must walk with the spirit of truth or we will fall off the edge into the abyss. Charles Spurgeon once said, A knowledge of all truth, a knowledge of all truth will make us very serviceable in this world. He's right. A knowledge of all truth will make us very serviceable in the world. It makes us useful. If we want revival, then it better be to make us more serviceable to the world and not to advance our own pettiness, our own little kingdoms. It's going to take way more than prayer and talk. Jo- Josiah sought to bring Israel back to practical obedience in every area of life. The high altars to the false gods, pull them down. The pagan pulpits, purge them. They're gone. Fire the pastors who won't preach against the idols. The greatest idol of our day, statism. Fire them. I don't care. If we're going to be revived by the Spirit and see sweeping reformation in the world, then it's going to start with you and I in the secret, quiet place. It's not bombastic. We usually think of like fireworks going off. Oh, this revival tip! No, it starts with one, two, three, four. A family's revived. A small church is revived. And people that they know are revived. And there's this fresh wind of the Holy Spirit. It happens in history, and it can happen again. Why bother demanding God to bless our own way? Why would God bless a person who would rather grumble than seek the Lord? Why would God revive a church that is working against his laws? Why would God revive a church who's apathetic about abortion? Why revive a people that is, has totally mishandled this whole pandemic? Why? Why would, why would God revive a church that's working against His laws? The very thing that He has written on our hearts by His Holy Spirit. Tozer once said, and we'll end here, the Word of God is before us. We have only to read and do what is written there, and revival is assured. It will come as naturally as the harvest comes after the plowing and the planting. And he's absolutely right. But you can't demand the harvest without first cultivating the soil. How many go out to an empty field and curse it? God, why haven't you brought these blessings to me? And, the I mean, you see the fields now. I mean, it's winter. (laughs) What do you got to do in the springtime to get it ready? You got to prep it. Prep your soul, friends. Prep it. The state of the church will always be abysmal the more we go on our own power and our own volition. If we will return to the Word and the Spirit and drink deep from these blessed graces, then change will in fact come. And you know why I know that? Because resurrection always follows death. Resurrection always follows death. Let's pray. Father, we've gathered together around your Word to be edified and to magnify you. And I pray that we've achieved that. Lord, we we appreciate so much what the Lord Jesus has given us in His Word in in explaining the work of the Holy Spirit. And I pray that You would help us to know that. And Holy Spirit, I pray that we would not be shy to talk to You. We're taught to pray to the Father. We can talk to the Son. We can talk to You, Holy Spirit. And we pray that You would guide us into that truth. And and would You not allow us to be stiff-necked about it? Not allow us to patronize You when it's convenient. Help us to be enthralled with your presence in our lives. So we glorify you and we honor you, Lord. As we sing, as we take communion, as we have our agape meal afterwards, I pray your blessing. In Christ's name, amen.